This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times books podcast where we talk about the latest titles and sizzling reads. I'm Toa Lee and I'm joined today by my co-host, Olivia Ho. Hey there. Hi, Olivia. Today we're going to be talking about two books. The first of them is The Library Book by Susan Orlean, a New Yorker staff writer best known for her 1998 non-fiction bestseller, The Orchid Thief. The Library Book is a book about libraries, particularly one library, the Los Angeles Public Library, which suffered the largest library fire in the history of the United States in 1986. So this was a fire that consumed some 400,000 books and damaged 700,000 more. The cause of the fire remains a mystery. It was suspected to have been set on fire by this young, blonde-haired, aspiring actor by the name of Harry Peake. But there wasn't enough evidence for him to be formally charged. Um, Arson, after all, is the least successfully solved crime. Ultimately, this book isn't just about the fire. We move from the history of the fire to the history of the library, and it also expands to cover bits of trivia as Orlean tries to sift through the ashes of history and, in a way, find out what actually happened back in 1986. She explores the idea of the library as a repository of memory and describes the destruction of libraries as a form of terrorism. So, Olivia, what did you like about this book? Well, I was very struck, first of all, because I'd never heard of this library fire, yet it was a huge fire, destroyed so many books. And I think the reason why no one has really talked about this, I think, is because it occurred in the same time as the Chernobyl nuclear accident. So it was in all the papers and the library fire was kind of pushed to page 14 or something. But to hear the way that she describes it, because she went and she actually interviewed all the librarians who were there. And to them, the library fire was something so cataclysmic, so traumatic that several of them actually suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. She interviews one librarian who said that because she was so stressed after the library burned that she didn't get a period for four months. And then another guy says that he it was the worst day of his life. The second worst day of his life was when his father died. So this gives you some idea of what the library meant to these people, to readers in that community. And uh, so another thing that she does extremely well is the way she combines profound research, profound scientific knowledge with truly excellent writing to you know really bring you there. So I'm going to read a part in which she describes how the fire looked. So this is a she interviewed a man called Ron Hamill. He was captain in the fire department at the time of the fire. So 30 years later he remains, you know, awed by what he saw that day at the library. He describes it the way people might describe seeing a UFO. So in his decades with the department, Hamill fought thousands of fires, but he said he never experienced another that was as exceptional as the fire at Central Library. Usually a fire is red and orange and yellow and black. The fire in the library was colorless. You could look right through it as if it were a sheet of glass. Where the flame had any color, it was pale blue. It was so hot that it appeared icy. Hamill said he felt like he was standing inside a blacksmith's forge. We thought we were looking at the bowels of hell, he said, tapping his coffee mug. Combustion that complete is almost impossible to achieve. But in this case, it was achieved. It was surreal. What I like about Orlean's style is that it's so compelling. I mean, it's excellent journalistic writing, and she also gets into the skin of the people who are telling the stories to her. And it's not just about the fire, right? It's about the history of the library itself. It's about the history of Los Angeles itself, almost, because everything comes together so tightly. And I also love how she sprinkles the book with interesting bits of trivia. Like, I think, um, like yeah, there's one bit where she mentions how in Senegal, a polite way to say that someone has died is to say the library has burned down. So it's almost as if you see books as vital resources, almost living things. 
I think that kind of ties back to your point earlier on when you said how that guy felt that the burning of the library was almost as bad as the death of his father. So this idea that books are living, breathing things, I think that really came through in her book, which is written in such a compelling way that it itself exemplifies its subject matter because there's this famous saying that poetry, poets give airy nothings a habitation and form. And I think that's exactly what Susan Arlene does in the book which is to give such an interesting slice of history and in a way so many interesting lost histories a resting place and not just a resting place but a place where they're still alive and when you read it it's almost as if you're stepping into that world itself it's so seamless so well written and I think as journalists we really appreciate the depth of research she went into she went to track down Harry Peake's family to find out more about him so Harry Peake was the guy supposedly who is thought to have burned the library and he, he was died this, in the 90s and he was this wannabe actor who's the trait that everyone remembers him for is that he was very blonde. He was the blondest blonde person. And so charming. Yeah, but he was also, you know, ultimately a loser. And he never, he went to Hollywood and he told everyone he was like doing really well, but he wasn't actually. Yeah, having tea with Cher, for yeah. instance. So he was accused of being there that day. The library, he was thought to have been the person to have burned the library, but they never were able to prove it. So she actually tracked down his family, talked to his sister about Harry's life and sister gave her point of view. And the other thing that she did that I found really fascinating was the part where she decided to experience what it was like to burn a book. Mm. So she actually went to set a book on fire. Now, of course, as a person who loves books, this is something... Sacrilegious. Yes, it's taboo. You can't do that. So, of course, she had to think really hard about, you know, what book she wanted mm. to burn. And this is, the, this is the great part. She picked a copy of Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which is the ultimate book about burning books. Mm. It's a dystopian novel in which books are not allowed so you know, firemen have to go into people's houses and burn books. Yeah, and Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which books burn. Yes. So, very apt choice indeed. Yes, and she goes to the empty hillside, she gets a bucket and everything, because she's terrified living in Los Angeles that the fire will spread. And then she sets the match to the page. And then she describes it as the page is rolling up as if it were a carpet, but then the page itself disappeared. And the whole thing was like over in seconds. And then it was just the aluminum cookie sheet foil that she, with some she used as black crumbs yeah. on it. And it was as if the book had never existed. And yes. she felt like she jumped out of an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's one interesting part of the book as well, which it really made me laugh out loud. There's this character called Lummis, I think it's pronounced. Okay, so basically um, some history. She, she gives us, um, she doesn't just tell us about the fire that happened in 1986. She tells us about, in a way, the early origins of the Los Angeles Public Library itself. In the 1880s, it was the way women who helped transform the library. And one thing that did happen, however, later on was in 1905, when the library board decided that it would be a good idea for a man to take over leadership of the library. And this kind of sparked the Great Library War of Los Angeles <laughs> because the current head, Mary Jones, who was doing a pretty good job, refused to resign. So they had to fire her in the end, and it was a protracted case. But finally, um, the guy who took over the library was this man called Charles Lummis. He was a bit of a celebrity figure. He was a journalist, poet, editor, historian, and adventurer. I think people were excited by the fact that he was going to get his hair cut one day. So that was how big of a celebrity figure he was in that community. So um, he was ambitious and definitely wasn't your usual librarian. So among the things he did, he branded books with a branding iron. He introduced wow. toxic symbols to books, telling people that, no, this is a bad book, don't read it. And while you're at it, you might as well read this book, which is better. He hired a man called Dr. C.J.K. Jones, who was given the title The Human Encyclopedia. So he was planted in a library and he was supposed to answer people's questions. But unfortunately, he ended up failing some civil service test that people usually took before working in the library. So that kind of backfired. 
Okay, here is one quote that I'm going to read out describing what Lummis got himself up to while he was leading the library. I quote, He loved the library, but he felt out of place among other head librarians he met at national conventions. He thought they were pompous asses, so he created a group he hoped would provide refuge for himself and his fellow librarian iconoclasts. He called it the Biblio Smiles, and it was also known as Librarians Who Are Nevertheless Human. The group's slogan was Cheer Up, American Library Association. So yeah, just a flavor of <laughs> um, the character that Lummis was. But he actually was a pretty significant figure in the history of the mm. library. He helped to advance a number of progressive changes to the library. He made it more accessible. He would um, encourage librarians to pounce on readers and users of the library who seemed lost. So there would pounce. always be someone, he used the word pounce, pounce on them. So he was very, um, very hands-on, very interested in making the library the cultural center that it is today. So definitely, if you love libraries, if you love reading, this is a book that you should not miss. I think it's probably one of my top three nonfiction books of the year. Same here. Not that I read a lot of nonfiction. I also like how there's a kind of coda towards the end where she goes on to talk about the future of libraries. What do we think the libraries of tomorrow will be like? Obviously, with the whole idea of borrowing books online and so on, you would imagine more people would prefer to read ebooks on the devices rather than visit the libraries themselves. But I think she makes a powerful case for the fact that libraries should be physical places people can gather at, cultural centers. And she also makes a pretty neat point about how libraries are the original co working spaces and they're free. So, yeah, we should all head down to our local library more often, yep. I suppose. Library is a community. Yes. Do you enjoy our podcasts? You can subscribe, like, and rate The Straits Times Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and listen to them on our website. Our other book for this episode is Melmoth by Sarah Perry. Set in present-day Prague, it introduces the main character, um, a 40-something-year-old English woman called Helen Franklin. She works as a translator, and she doesn't translate literature per se, but she's the kind of translator who translates Bosch power manuals into English. One of her friends is a man known as Carl, and through him, she gets hold of a collection of texts where the figure of Melmoth appears. So essentially, Melmoth is this woman who has been doomed to wander the earth and witness atrocities as a form of punishment. And this was punishment for having witnessed the rising of Christ from his tomb and denying what she had seen. So um, the idea of bearing witness is the major theme in this book. And we are made to bear witness ourselves to retellings of scenes um, from the Holocaust. And there's also another episode where someone is accused of having um, mercifully killed a woman who was a victim of an acid attack in the Philippines and so on. So in each of these scenes, the woman Melmoth tries to haunt the guilty um, and we're repeatedly told to look, to bear witness. So I'm going to read from the start of the novel. I quote, Look, it is winter in Prague. Night is rising in the mother of cities and over her thousand spires. Look down at the darkness around your feet, in all the lanes and alleys, as if it were a soft black dust swept there by a broom. Look at the stone apostles in the old Charles Bridge and at all the blue-white jackdaws on the shoulders of St. John of Nepomuk. Look, she is coming over the bridge, head bent down to the whitening cobblestones. Helen Franklin, 42, neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair, on her feet, boots which serve from November to March, and the mother's steel watch on her wrist. So it's exquisite, isn't it? It's gorgeously written. I think Sarah Perry, she loves her gothic stuff. And if you, it weren't for the fact that sometimes people text in the book, you wouldn't know that it was set in the modern day because it feels so gothic. Uh, she has this wonderful grasp of how to manage atmosphere. She, I think uh, one of the things that she does very well is to create these very gorgeous, grisly scenes that just spring out from the page like color plates in, you know, in an illustrated book. 
and uh, the things that really stick in your mind. Like there's one scene where you see this woman, she's limping, and then you notice that actually there's a square of flesh that has been cut out of the back of her foot in her heel, mm. and it's kind of like crossed over, and there's yellow fat coming out of it. And it's just the precision of the square, which is half an inch, half an inch. It just sticks with you. And I think it's a great horror book. I was quite chilled when I read it. I would Were you? Be, yeah, I am very susceptible to horror books, and I think it's not the kind of when you watch a movie, you're like, boo, jump scare, you know. Mm. It's the kind of thing where you're reading and you're reading and then you're like, somebody else is in the room with me, you know. Melmoth. Yeah, that's the whole atmosphere of the book because this woman, Melma, she just follows you around and, you know, she's got long black hair. She's wearing this black dress that's just swirling. She has bleeding feet and then she follows you and then she appears to you. She goes, I'm so lonely, you know. Will you take my hand? Will you take my hand? Yeah, and Melmoth is actually based on Charles Maturin's novel, Melmoth the Wanderer. Yeah, the 1820 in... Gothic novel, right? Yes. So, of course, Sarah Perry here has transformed it into A, a woman and she's made Maturin's one of the accounts in the manuscript. So it's pretty metatextual in that way. But she's changed the focus from wandering to witnessing. And Melmoth here is kind of a specter of human guilt. So she's a manifestation of what you do when you observe like human atrocity and then you're kind of transfixed by it. You don't really know how to process it. And you know how do you move on? Can you ever really atone for all the things that have happened? It's a beautiful book, but I mean, I don't think I was as enamored with it as you were. I mean, I, I really admire the writing. I think there is there is not a comma that is out of place. It's so carefully written, artfully artless. I mean, it's an exquisite piece of work. But reading it, it felt a bit like admiring a wintry landscape from behind a pane of glass. It felt mm. a bit like that for me. I don't want to say it was all surface, but it felt very on the verge of being indulgent. Indulgent? There was something very restrained about the way she writes. She's a very careful writer, but at the same time, I felt we're really luxuriating in, in language and the style in which the book is written. And I felt after a certain point, you just asked the question, so what? I know it sounds terrible yeah. saying that, but so what? But and there's one thing which struck me as well in the early pages of the book, which was how, even though it's beautifully written, it's carefully crafted, there's this sense of latent violence as well. I felt, I felt there was... How so? It, it's written with a kind of very brisk sobriety and there is a sort of violence brimming below the surface. So I'm just going to read out from one section, which is written by this man called Josef Hoffmann, who as a boy ratted out his neighbours to the Nazis. So um, this is a section where he's telling us about his parents. He starts off by describing his mother. I quote... She talked a great deal, her knowledge of the activities and scandals of villages ten miles along the Eger in each direction, was exhaustive, and delivered without wit. I was fond of her because I was her son. My father, meanwhile, was a man made up of the parts of other men. The achievements and eccentricities of my grandfather and great-uncles and so on were his sole source of pride. I think of him now as a piece of mirror hanging on a wall, empty unless another man walked past. That said, I, I do feel that this could have been deliberate on Perry's part. I mean, the characters have all sinned in some way. And in retelling their stories, um, I, I suppose there's an effort to present it in as unflinching and truthful a way as possible, which borders on the unkind. Or at least there isn't an attempt to make the person described seem kinder or more noble than they are, because I suppose they think they don't deserve it. So, so I see it as a, as a kind of roundabout way of them achieving some sort of penance by, by presenting themselves in such a harsh light. So that was just something I took from this book. I don't know if you felt the same way. Do you think the characters, you know, have great interiority? 
And it's like you said, you describe it as observing a landscape from behind glass. And I think part of the problem is that maybe you don't go very much into the psyche of the characters. I think it's deceptive as well because what seems like depth is actually surface. I mean, they try to say how they feel and we look at the situation from the perspective of the characters who lived in these situations. But it's also very self-conscious, I feel. It's, it's all written in a very self-conscious way. And there is and an effort to update it to the modern day by including um, the deportation of asylum seekers. There's a scene where someone ends up in an air they're trying to deport a man who's been you know, seeking asylum mm-hmm. and as he's leaving uh, with the protesters all around him he says witness me you know. And um, but then I suppose what we then get stuck with is the fact that the book is very transfixing but there isn't a forward motion so to speak so you're kind of hypnotised they're mesmerized by all this beauty and horror. Mm. And then after that, what do you do? So that is why for me, the book doesn't really stick its landing. I'm not saying that books should prescribe ways forward. But if a book pushes so hard, the message like this so hard, you know, the importance of witnessing human atrocity, then it feels kind of dissatisfying to just be stuck forever, just witnessing, you know? Yeah, I mean, we can't all be Malmuths, right? I mean, yeah, so I guess for me as well, the question was, we're bearing witness to these atrocities, but where do we go from here? Yes. That's the question. That said, it's still an excellent book. It's beautifully written, exquisite, one of the most well-written things I've read this year. And that's all we have time for today. If you haven't done your festive shopping yet, then the library book by Susan Orlean and Nalmuth by Sarah Perry would make for excellent presents for the bibliophiles in your life. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we did, do subscribe to Bookmark This on Apple's podcast app or on Google Podcast or even on Spotify. Do like it or give us a rating. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.